right, well, good morning. Um, those in the back, we have seats in the front. Front seats, just head this way. It's going to be awkward no matter what you do, so you might as well come now. Um, plenty of seats in this sector and this sector. Are we good? Everyone seated? Excellent. Um, it's 75 degrees in December 2nd. Who knew that? So, um, excited that you're here. We're thrilled. God is incredibly good. Um, we are pushing through the Gospel of Mark. We will be taking a pause at the end of today. If you would like to open your Bibles to where we'll be hanging out, it'll be Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34 will be our primary text, but we will also spend quite a bit of time in Luke chapter 10, should be a few pages over. Get to both of those if you'd like. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to dive in this morning. <sighs> Father, there is nothing and no one like you. Your greatness is more than our words can describe. Your Beauty um, exceeds any understanding. Your mercy and your grace, they are sufficient for all of our needs. May we press hard into you. May our hearts and our minds and our soul and our strength, may it be uh, devoted to our love for you. As we open your word, may we see it as truth and apply it so that you might receive glory and honor that is due you. Uh, we are a church and a people that desire more than anything, to be disciples of you, to live like you live, to, to honor you in the way that we act, in the way that we talk, and in the way that we lead, in the way that we love. So God, through our desire to do that, give us the necessary knowledge, the necessary grace, the necessary strength and encouragement uh, to do just that, so that you might have honor and glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We are on question three. If this is your first time with us, we are in chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark. We have been dissecting a question at, at a time. There's three questions total. This will be the end of the questions. It is the best of the three questions. We will look at them uh, completely today. We will finish them, and then, like I said, we'll take a little pause until January where we will pick back up uh, with the Gospel of Mark. But... We still have today, so here we go. Question number three, coming at Jesus from the religious leaders of the day. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 says this. One of the teachers of the law, if you read Matthew's account, we're not going to, but if you read Matthew's account, he adds just one little qualifying statement. He says one expert in the law, meaning this. He is a young, up-and-comer. He knows the law incredibly well. He has shown proficiency in it. He is a master of the law, an expert. They are sending in their big guns, they being the Pharisees. The Pharisees have already questioned Jesus once on this day. They were question one, but they sent their B team, and they got destroyed. So now the Pharisees regroup. They say, we got this dude. He knows his stuff. He'll be able to combat Jesus. But they send their expert in with one question. Now the expert comes on the scene and he heard them debating. The them that are debating would be Jesus and the Sadducees and those around. Now last week the Sadducees asked a foolish question about the afterlife. Jesus answered it marvelously, kind of putting them in their place saying, you don't even know what your own scriptures say. And now they're debating that answer still amongst themselves, but this expert of the law is just kind of on the wall, listening to everything that they're saying, soaking it in, doing what they do. Noticing, however, that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked his question. See the change in the demeanor. Questions one and questions two. 
they come on attack mode, completely combative. Like, let's get him. Come on, if he answers it this way, we'll stone him. And if he answers it this way, all the people will hate him. These are great questions. Come on. And, and this expert in the law, he comes up and he goes, man, you're sharp. Like, what you just did with them was incredible. And he publicly acknowledges that. Immediately infuriating those who had sent him to trick Jesus, I'm sure, but he, he couldn't help it. He knows the law. He's well-versed. And he says, your answer there was good. And in light of that, instead of asking a ridiculous question to just trap you, here's one that actually matters. The third question matters. Matters a lot. And here's the question. Of all the commandments, which one is the most important? Now, we hear that, and we think, ten commandments. There's ten of them. Okay, which one's the most important? Don't lie. Well, that's probably not the most important. Uh, Have no other gods before me. Yeah, that's probably the most important. But realize this. This question of which of the commandments is the most important, which one do we put on top of all the other ones, this was a hotly debated subject amongst the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the expert in the law, and the law provided these commandments. But the law didn't just provide ten commandments. The Old Testament, the law, it provided 613 commandments. So when the question comes out, of the 613, which is the most important? Which one do we put at number one? It's not as easy of an answer as you might think. Of the 613 commandments, there are 248 of them found in the Old Testament that say, do this. God says to His people, do this. They're positive commandments. Ways that we're to live our life. 248 of those, 365 don't do this commands. few more don'ts than do's, but they equal 613 commands that cover literally everything. We don't have time to read them all, um, but a Google search of the Old Testament commands is a very worthy 20 minutes of your life. I did this last night. It's quite humorous. They literally had commands, meaning, meaning this. I want you to hear this. God said to his people, not being joking whatsoever, I want you to be a people that is set apart. I want you to be a people that is holy. And what I'm going to provide for you is a way of living your life that is set apart from the rest of the world. And if you live according to this law, if you live according to these commandments, there will be a form of holiness, a form of righteousness that will put you in good standing with me. But you need to do it very well. You need to do these 248 things. You need to not do these 365 things. You need to do that very well. And the entire New Testament is basically written to say, that just didn't produce anything but pain. That never produced righteousness. But they had many commandments. They governed everything. It's from how to worship, do it this way, how to marry people, how to bury people. There were actually commandments that governed how to consummate a marriage. I'm not going to Leviticus for details on that, but there were there. This is how you consummate a marriage. There were commandments that said, do not eat these things, do not say these things. There were commandments that were only specific to certain types of people. For instance, judges, judge fairly, do not judge harshly. That was just for judges. There were commandments that were just for kings, 
Do not marry these type of people. If you're the king of Israel, don't do that. There were commandments that were just for kings. There were commandments that were just for men. There were commandments that were just for women. There were all sorts of commandments wrapped up in the 613 of them. They covered everything. Probably the funniest one that I found last night was this. There was literally a commandment, one of the 613 that said, do not read the Torah. Do not read scripture while you're intoxicated. That's a commandment of God. I kind of think that goes without saying. But he's like, don't get drunk and then open the Bible. And be like, Leviticus. Like, don't do that. <laughs> you would think that would go without saying. But it's there. One of the 613. So when this expert in the law asked Jesus, which one is the most important of all of those? It's a bigger question than we might think. Here's how Jesus answers. The most important one? You want to know what it is? I'll tell you. It is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one God. He is not many gods, like all the other religions of the day believed. That he is not one God who has an entity that's over fire and an entity that's over water and an entity that... It, he is not multiple gods. He is one God. And this monotheistic view is unique to the people of God. So Jesus starts with that. He is not multiple gods. He is one God. And you don't need many gods. You need one God. So there is one God, Lord of all. And we are to love, verse 30, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. That is the greatest commandment over all 613. That one is number one. The second, however, even though Jesus was not asked for number two, the second is the expression of the first, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus quickly answers by citing two specific commands. Do not think that Jesus sums up the law, like he takes a bunch of pieces and forms them together and is like, this is number one. He cites two very specific commands. First one, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. He reads it, says it, whatever, exactly how it's written there. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength, with all of your heart. He reads it perfectly, and then he goes on to Leviticus 19, verse 18, and he cites it exactly, love your neighbor as yourself. He reads those commands and says, if you want to push me on this, number one is this, number two is that, what else do you got? There's your answer, love God, that's the number one. Now I want us to note, this is important, this is not the first time this question was asked, and this was not the first time this question was answered in Scripture. That's why I have you mark Luke chapter 10. Head on over there. Luke chapter 10, months prior to this day of questioning, Jesus is in another discussion with another expert in the law. These are two separate encounters. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So the demeanor is different. This is not the same account. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is different. How do I get saved? What do I need to do to have eternity? Jesus asks him two questions. What is written in your scriptures? What is written in the law? And then, how do you read it? Or how do you interpret it? How do you apply it? Valid questions. What does your Bible say? And not just what does it say, don't just recite it to me, how do you apply it? 
So this expert of the law, not Jesus, notice who is going to answer this question. What does the scripture say and how do you apply it? He answers this way, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, wow, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I am not implying here that Jesus stole this guy's answer. But Jesus had already heard the answer. Jesus knew the answer. Jesus is the answer. I mean, I I don't want us to think that there's like plagiarism going on here. But just realize this question has been asked and this question has already been answered. So when Jesus just jumps on it, love the Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself, it's, it's already been asked, it's already been given. So how do we break it down? If those are the two greatest things that we must do, what does it mean to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength? What what does that mean? I think it's very simple. It means to love God with all of our being, with our whole being, with every fiber of our being, with every one of our faculties, thus the mind and the soul and the strength. I, I think it's important for us to see that. That's what it means. It's very simply is to love God, but it must be seen that this love is not just an emotion. This love is demonstrated in an action, thus the need for the second command. You love God, great. How do you love God? You love God by expressing that love to Him, by loving your neighbor as yourself. Once we recognize that our greatest obligation is to love God, the obvious question is, how does one express this love? Jesus gives us that. You can express your love to God through worship. And when I say worship, I'm not talking Romans 12 worship, where, Rome, where worship is a daily sacrificing of our life. I'm talking more about praise. I'm talking more about singing or, or posturing ourselves before God to praise Him. Uh, that's more what I'm talking about. And I think that's how a lot of us say that we are loving God. We come in here for 20 minutes on a Sunday, and we love God overtly by singing songs to Him. Uh, I think that is a form of love of God. There's religious piety as well that would be a form of love to God that encompasses all of the spiritual disciplines. As we do them, I think we do them, I hope we do them out of a love for God. That is a way to express our love to God is through religious piety. But that is not the best way, and here's why. Because you standing here for 20 minutes singing, or you sitting in a room praying for 20 minutes, let's say reading your Bible for 20 minutes, or fasting for 20 minutes, (laughs) that does nothing for the community, for the world, for those around you. You can do them because you love God, but it doesn't help anybody else. And I don't know if you know this about the heart of God, but he's about helping others. He's about loving others more than we love ourselves. Thus, the two-tiered command, love God by loving your neighbor. Now, the question then must be asked, who is my neighbor? It's a valid question. We know it's a valid question because it's the first one we ask. All right, I love God. We know that. Given. Cool. Um, Love my neighbor. 
Okay, I've got, technically, I guess I've got like six neighbors, but the ones I counted, the one on my left, the one on my right. The one on my left, brand new, just moved in literally like yesterday. Went over, took them cookies, like, hey, we love you. Like, am I good? Do I love God? Second one on, on our left, uh, certifiably crazy. Don't know how to love him, um, it, tangibly, but I mean, good, like we're trying. Um, so is that, is that my neighbor? By like our definition, yes, but what about biblically? Well, um, let's go back to Luke chapter 10, verse 29. The expert in the law wanting to justify himself, Luke 10, 29. And what that means is this guy obviously uh, loves some people, shows mercy to some people, kind of, kind of like us. Um, but he wants to make sure he knows that he's loving his neighbor since he just knocked the question portion out of the park. He wants to make sure he gets the application portion as well. So he asks, wanting to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Jesus, just by the way, by the way, if, in your definition of neighbor, who would that be? Jesus does not answer directly. He instead says a parable. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's where we get this. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan goes a little something like this. There was a man walking down the road. He gets robbed and beaten and left for dead. There was a very religious man who walked by and actually said, oh, I don't have time for that. I have many duties for God to accomplish. I don't have time for this. There was another religious man who walked by, and even though he didn't have anything to do, he was so devout in his love for God that if he had touched the blood, he would have been unclean. And because of his love for God, he couldn't help the man who was bleeding because he loved God so much. And then the third man who comes by, he was a Samaritan, which is about as low as you get in first century Palestine. And Jesus uses that very intentionally to say, then a Samaritan, like an ick person, walks by, goes over, bandages his wounds, picks him up, puts him in a motel, pays the innkeeper however much money he has on him, saying, keep him until he's well, look after him, I'll come back when I can, and if I owe you more, I'll pay you then. And then Jesus simply says, um, which one was the neighbor there? And the guy goes, well, the one who showed mercy. And he goes, then that's your answer. Um, the neighbor is the one who shows mercy. So how did he answer his question? Who's my neighbor? Very simply, your neighbor is everyone that you come into contact with. Your neighbor is not just people who look like you or people who live where you live. It's not a geographical thing. Your neighbor is not just someone who worships where you worship or acts the way you act, or believes what you believe, or votes the way that you vote, or earns what you earn, or loves what you love. But I think a lot of times we want that to be the case. Of course I love my neighbor. As long as my neighbor looks like me, lives in my safe neighborhood, or as long as my neighbor is completely downtrodden. We're okay with Loving the person who's completely down and out and the person who looks like us. But the person who has a lot more than us, they're like, well, they don't need love. Look at what all they got. I'm not going to love them. Or the, the person who's just one half step below us, we're like, well, I don't know. I mean, they're kind of worthy of love, but they're kind of like me. Whatever. We, we just quantify this and like, well, I want to love my neighbor, but my neighbor is who I decide. And Jesus could not be more categorically clear. The one who is the neighbor is the one who shows mercy to those they come in contact with. So the neighbor is those that you come into contact with. I can't see this any other way. 
so then, let's look at the rest of our passage in Mark and see exactly how we're supposed to do this and why this is important. Mark 12, 32-34. I love this. The expert in the law says, Well said, teacher. <laughs> seems, if he knew who he was talking to, he probably wouldn't have said this, but he just thinks he's talking to a peer. So he's like, well, that's impressive. No, no joke. But, well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one. I think that's really funny, <laughs> since he's talking to God. But you are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices combined. Whoa. That's his life right there. His life is burnt offerings and sacrifices and coaching people how to, how to do those. That's what he does, and that's what he does well. And he says, you know what? You're spot on exactly right. Loving our neighbor as an expression of our love for God, the one true God, is far more important than all these other religious things that we might do. When Jesus, verse 34, saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The three questions end well. The debate ends well. It's over, though. No one else is going to come approach Jesus. This guy just ruined that by basically saying, he's a genius, don't touch him anymore. The debate's over. They have no more legs to stand on. The expert commends Jesus by publicly admitting that his answer is perfect. But then the expert also reemphasizes that the love of God shown through mercy to your neighbor is far more important than any religious activity are you listening, church? This is now no longer teaching. This is applying. We need to hear that. Jesus tells us that the man is not far from the kingdom of heaven, meaning you're close to being in with me. You're close to transitioning from the old to the new covenant. You're, you're really close to getting this. And when he says that he's really close, I, I think that he's implying a couple things. One, he's saying actions are wonderful in theory, but in order for them to be truth, they have to be applied. And so, so here's what I mean, and I think, church, we need to hear this. The expert in the law knew this, but Jesus is saying you're close, and the reason you're close is because even though you know it, you still need to do it. Anybody in that boat? Here's my position. There's not one of you in this room who disagrees with what I'm saying. That's my position today. And if, if you do, like, don't talk to me. But anyway, there's not one of you who's, who's sitting here going... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the most important thing is, is loving God, and then I don't know if the best way to show our love for God is, is by loving our neighbor. I, just don't, I don't think any of you disagree with that. I think everyone's like, yeah, that seems right. That seems like a, a, a true statement. Yes, I understand that. So we're close. But knowing it and doing it are two different things, right? I think we all know it. How many of us do it? That's the first reason why Jesus says he's close. The second reason why Jesus says he's close is this, and this goes out to all of the self-righteous in the room. Just because you go love your neighbor this week 
Just because you do it doesn't mean you're in. Jesus still has to be Lord. You still have to accept him as Savior. You you can't do anything, even love your neighbor, even get as close as this guy is, like I love my neighbor, that's really close to being in, You, you still have to accept Jesus as Lord. But if you've done that, then the outflow of that is to love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest thing that we can do, the greatest thing is to love God, period. There's there's no greater thing that we can do. The greatest way to do that is by loving our neighbor. So here's my question, very simple. Chew on it, though. Do you love God? Do you, I'm, I'm not talking about your spouse, I'm not talking about your friend, do you love God? Of course, Todd, I'll shut it from the mountaintops. I'm in love with Yahweh. He is my home. I I, I love God. I I tingle all over when I think about God. Okay. (laughs) Do you love your neighbor? Because I'm not, this is not my opinion, this is just the text. If you say you love God, yet don't love your neighbor, I question the first, not the latter. Oh, but Todd, uh, you're, I think you're pigeonholing things here. It's not what it's all, yes, I have to love God, and of course I love God, but the, the outflowing of my love to God is just going to look a little different, because God made me different. I'm a thinker. I, I, like to, I like to study the things of God, and that's how I show my love to Him. Or I'm a singer, and I like to sing my love to God. Or, or I'm a writer, and I write my love to God. Or I'm a lazy person, and I, I like to sit on the couch and love God. Like, <laughs> but I do, I love Him. There's no more important thing than loving your neighbor May I now step on everyone's toes. This is my intent for the next two minutes is to hurt your toes. Everything I'm about to say is good, but it is not the most important. And if you're using one of these things as an excuse to not do what is most important, thus love God by loving your neighbor, if you're using any of these as an excuse to not do that, may your toes be hurt severely. Loving your neighbor because you love God is far more important than your doctrine. Loving your neighbor because you love God is far more important than your morality. More important. Loving your neighbor because of your love for God is far more important than what you give in the offering box. Loving your neighbor because you love God is far more important than the amount of knowledge that you can accumulate about God. Loving your neighbor because you love God is more important than evangelism. More important than taking the gospel? Isn't that loving our neighbor? It's part of it. It's not the whole. This one hurts me to say, but I've got to do it because these are my toes. Loving your neighbor because you love God is more important than discipleship. Loving your neighbor because you love God is more important than worship. It is more important than missions. It is more important than your study Hold up. It is even more important than prayer. 
All those things are great. Wonderful things. But if you use any of those things in place of loving your neighbor, I love God, that's why I pray. Awesome. The expression of your love for God is to love your neighbor. Prayer is just also good. I love God, thus I disciple people. Spectacular. At the expense of your neighbor? I love God, thus I write Air One Caliber worship songs. Thank you for that. But in the studio, how many of your neighbors are you impacting? You want to hear mine? Here's mine. I already said discipleship, but you want to know, I'll take it a step further. The way I justify not being actively showing mercy to my neighbors, everyone I come in contact with, you want to know mine? Because I pastor this church. Oh, well, you're my neighbors. So I'll, I'll love you and I'll show mercy to you, but I, I, can't, I don't have enough bandwidth to just show mercy to everybody I come into contact with at Walmart. Like, that's, come on, I'll just, I'll just... I'll just, you're, you're good. Clearly, that's enough for God. There's a bunch of you. <laughs> no. If I love God, then I'll love my neighbor. So, as Nick comes back up here, I want you to wrestle with this question. Do you love God? Do you love him? Do you love him so much? If the answer is in affirming, yes, I love God, then here's my question. Are you actively showing mercy to everyone you come into contact with? And if you're not, then here's all I want you to get. This is, this is all I want you to get this morning. That is the expression of your love. If you love God, then you will love your neighbor. And I know all these other things to some are delightful and they're good, but they're not the most important. And if you do not hear that and you do not see that this morning, then you're an heir. So the way we will respond is simply this. We'll respond by asking the God of the universe to come and reveal himself to us. Because I believe that when we get a glimpse of who he is, because we were created in such a manner, there's really nothing that our soul can do in response to him but turn in love. Especially when we've seen this grace. The gospel, it's, it's powerful and it changes even the hardest of hearts. So that's, that's what we'll do this morning is, is invite God here in hopes that when you see him, you'll fall madly in love with him. And then in hopes that if you're madly in love with him, the byproduct of that love will be that you show mercy to your neighbor. It's really simple. But it's what we're called to do. And then I, I, I'll finish with this. Please, see what has to be there first. If you don't want to deal with God because he's going to talk to you about some sin and some junk in your life that you don't want to deal with, but you're like, I can apply this and I'll just, I'll forego the loving God part because he keeps talking to me about my stuff. I'll forego that and for the next five or six days or five or six hours, I'll just try to show mercy to my neighbor so that I can apply what you said. Just realize this, you skipped the most important step. 
don't be legalistic and self-righteous. Just because you love your neighbor this week doesn't mean you love God. But if you love God, you need to love your neighbor this week. Amen? That's it. I mean, that's as simple as it gets. This is so simple to understand. Very hard to apply. So let's work at it together. And let's ask God to come help us. God, in the name of Jesus, come and just show us how to love you more. Show us how to intimately know you. And God, show us how to love our neighbor as ourself so that that might be our most glaring reflection of our love to you. Come and do that now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond to him.